Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from the KKXX Studios, Life Radio. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but have been a photographer for over 30 years. If a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you could say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as the program, What the Cross Means to Me. Each week we explore one of these cross images and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's devotional is inspired by the image entitled The Beginning. Now, I did share a devotional on that image a few weeks ago. However, today I'm going to share a devotional, what I call The Full Beginning. This is an excerpt from a new book that I'm writing. It'll be the second in the series of cross images and devotional essays. And this will be part one of that chapter. The first half will be today. I'll share the second half next week. And with that, let's start the full beginning, part one. I could still see it all in my mind. I can see the front room with a wide doorway that connected to another large room, both full of people, somewhere between 40 to 50 very happy people. They were all connected to one another in a contagious joyful focus of listening and watching someone sing a sing-over, or the enjoyment when the group would all join in on singing a certain song. You see, I remember being at that Christian youth get-together, and while it felt like a party to us, we never called it that. It was simply the type of event that our parents felt safe leaving us at. And this one, I recall recognizing many visitors from a neighboring church including that cool guy who served as a DJ with suitcases full of cassette tapes. Most all the songs we knew came from those cassette tapes. We had bought them from the local store. We heard some of the songs from a Christian radio station that had recently launched. And I recall how he had his boxes grouped by genre. One cassette tape suitcase was for rock with Cassette tapes for bands like Petra, Newsboys, The Call, Phil Keggy. Another one for pop like Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, Russ Taff, and Carmen. And another one for worship singers like Keith Green, Michael Card, and John Michael Talbot. And a favorite box amongst us was the gospel genre, including Andre Crouch, The Winin' Brothers, B.B. and CeCe Winans, Commissioned. There was an alternative genre, in one case with a whole host of new rock alternative type styles. And I remember seeing one of my buddies sing a moving rendition of Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me by the Winans. 
And it was towards the end of that, and it was about the time he was wrapping up that I remember becoming aware of the section of stairs where a lot of people were sitting. It was a very wide staircase, and it was the section of stairs that I was sitting on. And then I remember nothing, nothing at all, except noticing her, all of a sudden, sitting next to me, turning to look right at me. I'll admit, she may have been there longer, but the impact of that moment was such a breath-stopping moment that I think I lost a bit of my near-term memory from oxygen deprivation. The part of the brain, I believe, that was overshadowed by the gravity of that one memory. And then the next memory, soon after I breathed again, as I remember seeing her slowly, turning her head away with a soft and joyful smile. And I remember seeing her lift her head back up towards the crowd who had just joined in a popular song. And I remember she did not seem to mind my continued gaze her way. I recall simply soaking in her glow, one that seemed brighter as she sang along with the crowd. I had met her once or twice before, and I knew her name was Verna. And I knew how she looked when she was not singing, so I had a baseline. Or I guess I would say that I noticed in that moment how her glow grew brighter as she sang. I guess you could say I became mesmerized. And then I remember it happened. The magic of a single moment in time. Or actually a few back-to-back flashes. Kind of like holding the shutter down on the camera to shoot continuously. Click, 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 and click. And then you get a moment. Then a moment so significant that I felt like it had altered the course of destiny. I recall how it started when I became aware of a song by Commissioned that had just started. A Commissioned song I liked so much. So much so that I knew all the words to it. It was a soulful gospel ballad, and something beautiful was welling up inside of me. And I knew the song so well, I knew the words could apply to God or to a person. And so I just started to sing. And as of yet, I had still not moved the position of my body. I was still gazing at her. And I sang more, looking right at her and singing to her, just to her. And then there was that transition into another harmonic memory as she slowly turned and looked at me. At first, her face confused that she was a little stunned and not sure what to think, especially as a few friends were beginning to notice. But then I quit trying to read her face as that warm smile emerged, which allowed me the easy feeling to focus in even more as I sang that whole song to her, just to her. A song that felt like it went on for an hour. I remember all of it, including the next standalone yet back-to-back memory, when I realized, as the song had finished, that she had not turned her head at all. And of course, I asked the most obvious question, which was, when could I see her again? When can we find a way to meet again? And her response, when she said yes, was not just yes, but said with a smile as she spoke, a smile so big that it not just showed all her teeth, a twinkle in her eye, and even more, a glimpse into her joyful soul. Yeah, I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember planning shared events to meet at, like a church event or a Christian concert or something like a Christian night at the local skate rink. It wasn't too long before she introduced me to her parents, which was great as I could then ask if they would allow me to take her out on a date. Now they always said yes which is not surprising as their definition of a date meant I would go to church with their family on a Sunday night. And so I did. 
for quite a long time. Sunday morning at my church and Sunday night at hers. And as things evolved, they let me come over more. And not just after church, but eventually many nights per week. And not just come over, but stay over. Not overnight, but well after they went to bed. They were the type that could have peace as long as she was home safe behind that locked door. Even if I took her out to lunch at midday, they would be anxious. As you might expect, it became part of the family early on. If I wanted to see her, most times that meant going with them wherever they were going, whether it be fishing or out to eat. And all those memories were stacked up until I felt it was the time to encounter the majestic memory when I asked if she wanted to be married with me. And most especially when she said yes. A yes that I saw on the wide smile and radiant aura. Well before I heard the vocal cords create the sound of an agreement, a sound of agreement overflowing with excitement, an excitement that bubbled up from the perspective of a prayer answered, I knew she was going to say yes before I heard the sound. Of course, there were family members that said, they're too young, they got to finish college first, or all these common refrains. However, no argument like that really ever took legs because our love was too hard to deny. Our wedding was very humble. The service in the chapel and then the reception next door in the multi-purpose room. We had no caterer. Everybody brought food. And we had fun, like at, like at the get-together we met at. Our familiar songs playing as we stood around and socialized. Now, this was a wedding reception, but we didn't dance. It was an unspoken thing. In our non-denominational Christian culture that we all shared, it was an unspoken rule that you don't, you just don't dance. It was frowned upon. So instead of a money dance, we had a money tree. There was no first dance, but we had a chance to read a poem to each other. And of course, lots of socializing. And I remember starting off our marriage in prayer, meaning back at our honeymoon hotel room, we knelt at the bed together and prayed for about 10 to 15 minutes asking God to bless our marriage for each other and for the kingdom. Now, she had saved herself for marriage, and thus the moment felt very sacred, and we treated it as such. And not just for that first night, as that prayerful beginning reverberated over time. The perspective that our intimacy was a sacred and spiritual encounter permeated the rest of our marriage, making our overall marriage sacred and spiritual. And prayer was a central part of our daily routine as we moved on to making married memories together. And yes, there were a young couple in love charting their way through a new shared life, making great memories along the way with some intense ones. We were now married, living and growing through married things, some things that were so intense it could have broken many other couples. But having a commitment to daily and nightly prayers turned out to be a crucial component to getting through it all. Remember, many people believe that prayer doesn't change God, it changes you. So it's imperative to pray before you go to sleep. And yes, we had many prayers of gratitude for the love and joy in our marriage and for the effect that we were having on those in our circle of influence. Now, I was still working at the lab, a test laboratory, one that I began working at at age 18. The EMC test lab that had me, in addition to wearing a number of different hats, shooting the client equipment for the agency reports. With a camera, of course. 
It happened because the lab owner was wondering why the FCC was rejecting his prints, which back then were required to be black and white 8x10s. I did not know why, but I asked if maybe it had something to do with shooting the board out on the concrete in full sun. And maybe there had to be something about how the sun blew out the white letters on the dark board and how you couldn't read any of the dark letters on the metallic reflective components like oscillators. So I asked the photo guy I knew, and he told me how to set up a system on the cheap. This involved only a camera, a tripod, a table, and a white paper as a backdrop. I was to open the door and let the ambient light naturally stream in. With the camera on the tripod, I would compose the shot and then put the setting at a certain ASA, later to be named ISO sensitivity. And so I set the ASA setting to a certain number. And most importantly, I would enter the main setting towards aperture priority which would allow the camera to figure out the right amount of time that would be needed for an adequate exposure, which is why you need the tripod to keep the camera steady. Because in this method, it always meant a long shutter speed, like a 15th or an 8th or a 4th of a second. On cloudy days, it could take as long as a second. And the boss loved my results, which were soft yet adequately exposed and incredibly tack. So in addition to all the other hats I wore at the lab, I became the photographer. After capturing, I had to make the prints first by developing my own black and white film and then printing them at a local print lab. Then the prints would be included in the formal report that would be submitted to the agency. But the business for the lab kept growing, which meant we could save money and turn around by building our own darkroom. I had already started taking a photo class, including a darkroom class, so it did not seem hard to me to create a darkroom and and bank it inside the same photo studio and so it was i became enamored with photography from that point on both with the procedure and the channel of artistic expression from the beginning i was attracted to capturing the majesty of god's creation the test lab was intentionally out in the countryside as this was an era before semi-anechoic chambers were realistic and testing was performed on what what we called an open area test site, meaning outside, a certain distance from any buildings. And being outside of the city eliminated most all of the ambient frequency interference potential. And I say that because the lab was nestled up against a series of little hills, rolling ridges inhabited by various types of oak trees, and visited often by cows left there to pasture. And I fell into a routine of getting to the lab hours before my start time. I'd grab the camera, hike up the ridge, and find shots to capture. Shooting east into the sunrise or shooting west with a soft amber new light softly illuminating my scene. The area was geologically prone to little fault ponds, and I found you could play with the majestic mix of fleeting sunrise colors reflected off the pond surface. I came across coyotes mountain lions, tarantulas, rattlesnakes, and lots of vultures. And it was a great place for a young photographer to explore techniques and play with different approaches. And I discovered something. I found I was so desirous to capture as much of the sunrise that I felt constrained by the little rectangular borders of the camera's capabilities. And I remember trying once to shoot vertically instead of horizontal. We would call that portrait versus landscape. And keep in mind that this was in the late 80s, so I had to wait until I developed the film 
or at least made a contact print, or better yet, get a pack of prints from the lab. And I recall that moment when I saw the vertical shot of that sunrise, that it resonated with me. Something about the composition was compelling. 10% foreground, 90% sky. And I felt it more akin to my vision of what I was trying to capture. In other words, I began shooting what I now call skyscapes from those very early years. And across all the photography I've ever done, 90% plus of my images are now vertical shots, vertical compositions. Now back at the lab, I was shooting client equipment, you know, computers, which you could refer to now as product photography. And I began fulfilling requests from client here and there to produce prints that they could use for marketing and spec sheets. That started me down the path of thinking of this new passion as a business. But focusing on B2B was hard because I worked all day, went to college at night, so I fell into what many new photographers do. I began shooting family portraits and weddings. But after a few years of that, I was very unsatisfied for a lot of reasons. <laughs> and the only subject matter that did provide me contentment was shooting nature and skyscapes. Verna noticed this, and she was very encouraged by my passion and believed in my talent. Even back then, I felt I was showing people about God by showing his creation. Verna was my patient zero, the first true believer, my first champion for the premise that God had given me this talent as a way of pointing to the Creator. So even though she was still helping with the photo business, she reached for even more. You see, Verna was a type A personality, a strong-willed, well-grounded, and self-assured woman that some men get intimidated by. For our photo business, it was great. She met with the clients, negotiated pricing, completed and signed contracts. All I did in most cases with the show up was to show up and shoot. But I only had so many hours in a week, so Verna set out to flip that script. She told me, and others in our circle, that her goal was to make enough money to not need a day job and then manage the photo business towards stock. Selling stock means you're licensing a pre-existing image to a buyer. Back then, there were two defined paths. One was rights managed, which are negotiated terms of money, regionality, and length of time, or royalty-free, a much, much lower cost that they could use however they saw fit. And the thought was that she could start prepping and selling stock while I was still making more images on the weekends. And so, while making strides in the photo business, she entrepreneurially created a little businesses um, that were doing very well. So much so to the point she thought it was time to retire from her day job. So she put in her resignation with her boss and they threw her a retirement party. They called it that because they knew Verna's goal and her objective was to set me free from my day job next. I was at that party and it was full of joy as her friends and co-workers got to say goodbye. And yes, I, I remember like it was yesterday, how proud she was of her little desk and she was ready to take on the world. And just 13 days later, after she got to spend her weekdays at that desk, she started feeling a little pain, and then a lot of pain, and then barely enough strength to even call her sister who rushed over and called an ambulance. I was a little bit out of town at a seminar, a full two hours away from the hospital, but I headed over there as soon as I got the call. When I arrived, they had still not done anything. 
Yes, she was in a bed in the ER room, but hardly anything significant had been done or planned yet. It was another four hours after I arrived, they finally decided to perform some exploratory surgery. When, after yet another few hours, the doctor came out to tell us the prognosis and the plan. And by this time, about 40 to 50 of our family and church friends had arrived and were praying in earnest. And the doctor took the parents and I away from this large host of people to brief us more personably. The doctor informed us that they discovered a large tumor in her intestine, meaning colon cancer. They had given her a colostomy and they would schedule her chemo just in case they had not gotten all the cancer. But most importantly, they told us she would be fine. The worst case would be that she might still have some hidden tumors, but that the chemo should take care of that. While her parents were relieved at this news, I had an ominous feeling. I began to have flashbacks of events in her life that I felt might become very relevant in this new situation. The one big one was Verna told me how she watched her beautiful grandmother whittle away over a five-year battle with cancer. Verna said she wishes she could have remembered her grandma when she was healthy and not in her final stages at a mere 75 pounds. I also recalled how he helped my grandfather after his colostomy, which is not very pleasant at all. You have to take the bag and wash it out and the smell of stool, the technique of getting the stool out of the opening, and the sound of uncontrollable flatulence. And I remember how Verna had told me that if she ever had either cancer or colostomy, let alone both, that she would rather die. And I remember asking the doctor after he told us she had come to for a bit, I said, did you tell her about the colostomy? And when he said yes, when the doctor said yes, I felt a deep pit in my stomach. So as much as I prayed alone and also with the rest of the group at the hospital, and of course there was a prayer hotline that had lit up, I wasn't feeling overly optimistic. Something did not feel right. A feeling that was confirmed yet another few hours later, at the point when the doctors felt she should be coming to from all the anesthesia, and yet instead of coming to, her vitals started slipping. And then they continued to slip. And then the other doctor said she all of a sudden had a 50-50 chance of coming to. Not too long after that, that she had a 20% chance of pulling through. Why? What had happened? Well, remember the six-hour delay when Verna first arrived at the ER? Actually, it was a full six and a half hours before they opened her up to assess what was really happening. And what they found was that the tumor had popped out or punctured the intestinal wall. And thus, the toxicity of the intestinal matter became, began to mix with her bloodstream. The doctor said he did not feel it was enough to be terminal, and yet... Here we were watching her slip away. I contend that it was the news that the doctor had told her, meaning I firmly believe that when Verna heard that she had cancer and a colostomy, she simply kept herself from fighting to get to us. Verna had simply given up. And I guess that was a good thing from the perspective that this feeling prepared me and in a way grounded me as Verna kept slipping away. And then the feeling got stronger as she got weaker. And at one point, I was holding her hand. I felt an awareness well up within me. And as it got stronger, I could sense the countenance of the nurses become much more intense. And then it happened. I felt something on around my hand. But I could still feel hers. But I sensed a tangible feeling of something as I heard the dreadful tone that indicates a flatline. 
the tone that informs you that the heart has stopped, the tone that strips away all hope as you realize the love of your life has gone. But as the hope was draining away, something even stronger started to fill up within me. And it was in that instant that I knew exactly what my extremity had sensed, as I felt a hand, a third hand, God's hand, holding under hers, in between ours. And in touching mine, causing another part of my psyche or spirit to see and sense things that are unexplainable, but I will try. In all of a few seconds, I saw beyond my life, beyond our marriage, beyond our families, our church, and even our denomination. I saw beyond my country, beyond this planet, and even beyond the solar system. You see, I saw something ultra-dimensional. Now, the common school of thought is that there's 12 dimensions, while others say there are nine. And if it seems the higher dimensions have the purest vibrations, and as you ascend, you lose what you think human emotions are. You lose attachments to paradigms, perspectives, and predetermined notions about, well, everything. Replaced with a knowing, a high-level understanding, or at least an insight into what Einstein called the unified field theory. And I remember seeing Verna, a joyful, contented, glowing Verna. As I had the ting in my soul of seeing this happy version of Verna, I saw something completely unexpected. It partly felt like an out-of-body experience, like when people see themselves in the hospital bed from above. And it partly, it felt like I was in two universes, meaning I saw myself with Verna in that dimension, with this radiant energy being I perceived to be the creator of everything. But I felt me here, wherever here was, and I saw me there with Verna. And like that, what felt like I had gone to eternity and back was over. I was back in the hospital room. I was still holding her hand. The tone of the flat line was still sounding, and I realized only seconds had passed. At this time, I felt God taking her hand from mine, and of course, I released Verna to him. I now knew that within a second, I would be with her again in eternity. I just had to live the rest of my life out first. And then my peripheral vision started to widen, and I could hear the spread of grief flowing like a creek out the door where the people were, and I could hear and feel it spread across the outside of one wall and around and across the other wall. The gut-wrenching, soul-splitting, and spirit-crushing sound of the deepest expression of grief. It was overwhelming. Not because I could not handle it. No, I was not crying. I had just received such an ultra-dimensional vision resulting in an extraordinary peace. And I just felt I need to continue to dwell with or cohabitate with or commingle with that feeling. So I slowly but purposefully slipped out, not to the hallway and waiting room where everyone was at. I slipped out an alternate door and out to another and found myself exited at the back of the hospital. I found a lonely little bench, sat down and stared at the stars, knowing Verna was up there, right here, in that part of the sky, in a hidden dimension that my human eyes could not see, or maybe it was over there in that part of the sky. But I realized I did not need my two bodily eyes, because I had already saw her there, and I knew that she was there somewhere. And as I stared and stared and continued to stare, trying to use that part of me to tap into that feeling of eternity again. And so it was that peace at the tone of the next weeks of my new journey into widowhood. And I held on to that with all that was within me, the vision of the joyful new her and what 
Every dimension that was that I saw her at was enough to recharge my gratitude, my hope, and my faith levels. Knowing that even though her body gave out, she never really died. Knowing, beyond knowing, that when she had accepted the sacrifice Jesus made for her on the cross, asking him to come into her heart, that the spiritual die was cast, and he did just that, he dwelt inside of her. In the moment when the flatline tone sounded, she was instantly in the presence of Jesus. And that knowing kept me for the months that followed, the core belief that she was not dead, but alive in Christ. Hallelujah! Part 2 next week. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program heard every week here on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed, like this image at the beginning, along with other verspirations, then check out Rob Holt Inspires on Instagram. And if your church, youth group, or school would like to learn about how to fundraise through Cross Products, hear other Cross podcasts, then log on to roberholt.com. That's R-O-B-E-H-O-L-T.com.